Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. So historians always get asked this question, I mean, maybe especially the last 10 years or so, like, has it ever been this bad? And for a long time, my stock answer to that was, for who? Right? Like, how can you even ask that question? Like, look at the past of the country. Has it ever been this bad? Um, For most people living in the United States and their ancestors, it's been a whole lot worse. Hello, welcome to Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I've been thinking a lot lately about story and about which stories we tell and um, what we learn from them. Uh, I think I mentioned in a outro a couple weeks ago that I listened to the Hannah Gadsby show Nanette, which I found really remarkable. But that, that line she keeps saying that, that you learn from the part of the story you focus on. A lot of American politics and even culture right now seems to me to be a fight over the part of the story we focus on, the part of the story we tell. Is it a story of progress? Is it a story of struggle? Is it a story of fairness, of unfairness, of of enough having been done or not enough having been done? And it's important, not just politically, but it's important because it's what we learn from. It's important because the part of the story we tell ourselves helps us understand what's going on now and what needs to go on now. During all this, I've been reading Jill Lepore's book, These Truths. And this book is such a stunning achievement. It is a one-volume history of the United States of America. And we've had those in the past, but we haven't had one for a while. Lepore is a, a historian at Harvard University. She is a writer for The New Yorker. She's a, a beautiful writer, an amazing synthesizer. I mean, the, what she puts in and also, just remarkably, what she leaves out. Uh, I've been kind of stunned reading the book. And so when I got to talk to her, I really wanted to talk to her about why she chose the stories and the themes she did, like what part of the history she's learned from and what part of the history she wants us to learn from. And, and this conversation is such a pleasure. She's such a, like, just clearly brilliant person to talk to um, that that I learned a lot and just, ha- and I think all of you will too. Um, so as always, my email, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. But here's Jill Lepore. Jill Porth, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks so much for having me. So I wanted to start with like the the context of this book. It it feels to me like historians in general, and, and this book in particular, are trying to focus on and learn from a different part of the American story 
Is that right? I'm not sure what you mean by historians in general. Trying, I mean, there was a revolution in American historical scholarship that started really in the 1960s. So, you know, the last half century since the time when women and people of color entered PhD programs and became history professors, American historical scholarship has been turned on its head in the sense that what we know about groups and people that had been left out of earlier accounts of the nation's past has expanded uh, just wildly, exponentially. What I think has been tricky, a tricky consequence of that expansion is, you know, the fragmentation. So we don't really have a kind of good, coherent national story anymore. And people would say, well, the last national story was actually a bad national story in the sense that it left out, you know, most of us. So uh, the work that I try to do in this book was try to figure, can you put the pieces together and make a story, you know, create a story that has that has narrative coherence that's true to the facts and the evidence in the archives and that, that that's comprehensible. Yeah, so that's actually what I what I mean. So I'm glad you I'm glad you put it so much more clearly there than than I did, which is I feel like reading American history over the past couple of of I don't know, years compared to when I was even in college, um you know, 15 or however many years ago that now was, different characters were 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 emerging. I mean, I think of Ron Chernow's, you know, biography of Hamilton or the recent one of Grant. I mean, both of them when when I was learning American history, you know, 15 20 years ago, you know, Hamilton was the monarchist and he was bad and 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 you know, Grant was his failed president. <laughs> still true. I'm sorry. That's actually still I, true. Tell me, because I, I thought, because Cherno pushes back on both of those. Tell me a bit. I think it's fascinating the Cherno, Lin-Manuel Miranda interpretation of Hamilton as someone who's been left behind and misunderstood, like, poor Alexander Hamilton, like, we just haven't paid enough attention to him. I just don't, I mean, there's that. That piece of it is what I find sort of maddeningly hilarious. But so there is a lot of reinterpretation of big canonical figures. That, that is a, uh, an evergreen in the way history is written. We're always wrestling with different pe- people in power and trying to make sense of them for a new era. That's part of the work of historical interpretation, and it changes from generation to generation. I think, though, that's not the transformation that I'm really talking about, because, of course, most of that work, that, that work, when you say the history you've been reading and, you know, talking about Grant and Hamilton and presumably the sort of, you know, McCullough, John Adams work or kind of Doris Kearns, Goodwin and Michael Beschloss kind of work that uh, most of that work is presidential history. I mean, obviously, Hamilton wasn't a president. He wasn't born in the United States, not eligible. But uh, presidential history is what most book buyers think of as American history, because that's the most commercially successful. And people love that. I mean, I you know, I find presidential history fascinating, too. Presidents are really interesting. They have a lot of power. They they exert them, their, their power over other people in ways that we can understand and see and are significant. So that is really important. But actually, that's a fairly recent thing that presidential history reads to people as history, because history, of course, is much bigger than that. And that's the problem. I would love to know if this sounds right to you. What seems to me to be happening, um, and this is as somebody who's a lay reader, I'm not a historian, and I, I wouldn't even call myself like a like a very good reader of history in general. But is that a lot of the American story that was being worked through in history for a long time was about the story of how did America become so great? How did we become the world's only global superpower? How did how did this country started out of nothing? How did it become so fantastic? And a lot of the more recent work, and I, I feel this is true in your book, I feel it's true in some of the, you know, in the in the Cherno books and, and some of the other things you're you're mentioning there, is there seems to be more attention to 
the kind of sins upon which America was built and the threads of our history that were not that great and the things that we struggle with, there seems to be an effort to recenter and learn from that story. And it's true in popular journalism, too. I, I'd put people like Tanasi Coates in this category. But there seems to be a, an effort to create a, an almost parallel narrative that is not necessarily taken away from from some of what's in the first, but is looking at figures and is grappling with the, the people who are ground under like America's practically early progress and, and trying to take more seriously what that part of our history means for our present. So that's a really interesting thesis. And I feel bad as because I keep quibbling with your no, questions. No, please. I, I, I like you quibbling. <laughs> you know this much better than me. So all of my questions this are going to be done. Pe- this is the pedant in me. I mean, I just so I, actually you, what you draw the distinction between sort of an American exceptionalism, American triumphalism narrative, American history and a kind of American atrocity genocide, slaughter, enslavement story, the trampling of of the working class, et cetera. Those, I entirely agree with you. You could sort a lot of American historical writing into one of those two categories. Where I'm going to disagree with your characterization is that you see that as a change uh, over, over a timeline, that we used to tell a triumphalist story and now we tell a story of atrocity, that there's been a change over time. When in fact, what you see when you read the history of American history is that those two narratives are always competing with one another. So you have triumphalist accounts in the 19th century, say something like George Bancroft, who was a secretary of war and also an American historian, writes the first, you know, mammoth history of the United States. It's a story of manifest destiny and conquest and triumph and the march of spread of democracy across the continent. But you also have Frederick Douglass, who I think needs to be understood, among many other things, is a great American historian, reading essentially the story of slavery, writing the history of slavery in his series of autobiographies, which are allegories, uh, as well as his speeches and and his political writings. So you think of the 20th century, there, there continues that tradition, the great triumphalist accounts of, say, a Frederick Jackson Turner writes about the, the significance of the frontier, the end of the frontier in the 1890s, and on and on and on. But then you have a Charles Beard who writes a, a, writes a sort of indictment of the framers of the Constitution and that they were just protecting their wealth, this kind of progressive era critique of the notion of American liberty as disinterested somehow. Or you have in the early decades of the 20th century, W.B. Du Bois, the great American historian who writes about the failure of Reconstruction and offers an entire, starts a whole kind of counter argument against the kind of lost cause of the Confederacy interpretation of American history. So there have always been these dueling accounts, right? There's that's that's always been the case. We have a recent version of that, which is, uh, I think you would date that kind of American, the most recent version of that American atrocity, the sort of underside of American history is the thing that most young people are more familiar with is Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States, which came out in 1975 and is still really widely read, although it's much mocked. Like, I'm fascinated to see it in many films lately. <laughs> so um, as a form of mockery. Yeah, wasn't um, it? Isn't it in Lady Bird? That, uh, it's in Lady Bird, yeah. Which, <laughs> which actually, it. <laughs> but what really kind of traces an interesting, it's also in Goodwill Hunting. Do you remember uh-huh, like Matt yeah, Damon right. and Ben Affleck read it, you know, here in Cambridge, where I live in the public high school, where it's still assigned you know, like, and loved it. And so it's like a marker of the erudition and the autodidacticism of Matt Damon's character. Well, he can quote Howard Zinn. But in Lady Bird, the guy who who likes Howard Zinn is like the bad boyfriend. It's like the poser, the kind of 
bro, white boy. So that in there, there's that. But so like, there's not that there's always been that tension. And so you all on the one hand, you have like the Howard's in on the other hand, you have like Newt Gingrich, you know, his PhD in American history and thinks of himself as a great American historian. He's kind of retelling this triumphalist story that could have been written by George Bancroft in the 1830s. But I think the people who are doing the sophisticated work, uh, and I would, you know, absolutely count Coates among them, are actually trying to break out of that false division, right? And see, uh, and I think Du Bois and Douglas were in this tradition as well, and and see both sides of that and see that they are actually flip sides of the same coin, of a single coin. Well, well so here I'll quibble back because I think something that's interesting in, in the way you put that division, the sort of American atrocity versus American progress, is it... It often feels to me that this is a struggle, certainly in the the political space where it eventually like trickles down to trickles down to hacks like me, that it, it's a struggle over what makes America great. Right. It's a struggle over is our greatness something that is encoded in our past, in our ideals and like the the broadly men who have you know run our institutions or is our greatness in a kind of struggle a kind of constant effort at, at perfection i mean in some ways politically i think president obama was like the the central articulator certainly recently of like that idea of the american story and then you have donald trump come in in a much cruder way but i think if you kind of like pull back the rhetoric and look at what's inside of it it's a an appreciation for what was achieved here and i, I see a lot more of that out there right i think you could you know you, you could put somebody like jordan peterson in that category I mean, he's talking more about the West in general, but there's, it, it feels to me that there's a real, there's a tussle over what is the story we're telling. Is a story, uh, a story of, my God, look at what we achieved, or is a story, a, um, a, a story about, you know, the people who had to fight past the names and narratives that are often within that achievement for, for something else? Like, what do we want to honor? And it shouldn't necessarily have to be binary, right? Like just history is complicated and people are complicated. But that feels to me like where this collision has been in, in the past couple of years, at least. Yeah. And here, look, we agree. <laughs> We've reached a point of agreement. I, absolutely. And that is because that is history as politics, right? That's ideologically driven historical argument. So make America great again is a historical argument. It is an argue, historical argument in four words. It, it stipulates that the past was better than the present. And the only way the future can be better than the present is if we return to the past. So that's what conservatism is, right? <laughs> like that's this whole, you know, William F. Buckley, like we stand athwart history calling out stop. Like that was the, you know, the slogan of the National Review. Like we want to stop history and we want to go back. That's what a conservative politics is. And therefore, if you are a conservative trying to use history ideologically, that's the history that you resurrect. If you are a progressive, and of course, like these two terms contain within them their argument about history, right? Like history is a march of progress, right? That's what progressivism believes, what the progressives believe. They believe in the idea of progress, the 18th century enlightenment idea of moral progress, the 19th century idea of technological progress, whatever version of progress they believe in, they believe in progress. So yes, we can. Like that's that's the that's the ideologically driven understanding of the relationship between the past and the present and the future. I I, I that is binary because those are partisan positions. I don't think they reflect how history, how historical change happens or the relationship between historical forces and historical change. And I think we accept as historical argument stuff that is really just partisan by another name. So let's go into your book, because um, uh, rather, rather than be at this high altitude, you have a, a, a sentence early in the book that, that felt to me like in many ways the thesis, which is the American Revolution did not begin in 1775 and it didn't end when the war was over. 
What, what do you mean by that? I mean by that in the sort of tight focus sense that revolution, that is uh, toppling a political order in the way in which that happens in what becomes the United States by insisting on one's natural rights, has been happening for centuries in the land that becomes the United States before 1775. And it has been happening with every runaway slave, with every war waged by Native peoples fighting for their land, but with every alleged rebellion of enslaved peoples uh, insisting on their liberty, with every petition drafted by enslaved peoples, with every resistance to a treaty by Native peoples, with wives running away from their husbands, servants running away from their masters, apprentices running away from journeymen, that that spirit of, uh, of rebellion animated not by a search for necessarily personal liberation, but by a political commitment to natural-born rights, that, that that's something that is an inheritance, uh, an American inheritance, but it doesn't emerge in the 1770s. It actually comes out of this crucible of, of violence, of slaughter, of enslavement, and by the stark questions that that violence raises for people about the nature of rule. Was that something that, that was unique to America? Something you, you mentioned in the book is that America got rid of its king, but at the, about the same time before we did, England got rid of its slaves. Was the was the move towards freedom and the, and the move towards upending power hierarchies, was that, how distinct was that to us versus that being a story we tell about ourselves distinctly? Yeah, that's a good question. It's not really distinct to us, obviously, but it is, it's, it's important to us and in ways that we should think about. And it is different for us, right? I mean, it is just different for us. And I, I spend a lot of time uh, the book is a really a political and intellectual history, chiefly. And so I spend a lot of time with someone like John Locke, 17th century English political philosopher. You know, and Locke famously writes, in the beginning, all the world was America, at the beginning of the two treatises on government in 1690. And what he's saying is uh, that his theory of a state of nature, that before governments were erected, before government existed, men, and he means men, men lived in the state of nature uh, like the peoples of America, like the native peoples uh, of the Americas, and that they, by an act of consent, erected a government, right? Now, that's sort of how he comes up with his, he, he explains his theory of natural rights and of the consent of the governed. That, that's just, that's in many ways a kind of um, a thought experiment for him. He's trying to explain to his reader the logic of his argument, right? But it is also the case that there was an incredible intellectual ferment in Europe when Europeans tried to sort of wrestle with encountering profound difference, what was for a long time called the unknown part of the world. And, you know, we are absolutely being Eurocentric and talking about their vantage on this, but there's a point in paying attention to what their vantage on this was. And, and their vantage on this was a lot of people have been talking about, well, how did things come to be? How did things start? And how did, for instance, governments gain their authority? And in Locke's lifetime, all the questions were about, why does the king think that he is ordained by God to do whatever he wants over parliament and over the people? And you know, that had been the question of Locke's lifetime. And so looking for an answer to that question, kind of naturally, these you know political thinkers, well, actually, well, if you look at a place that to people like Locke did not appear to have a government, I mean, this is the great misperception that Europeans have of Native peoples because their government is different. They decide that they have no government, that a difference is always read by Europeans as an absence. And so like, OK, so it's not just that we can imagine a time before there was a king, 
But actually, we can look at a place of real people kind of anthropologically and say, these people don't have a king. Like, what would have to happen for them to have a king? So that is not the United States, right? But that is a set of political ideas that will, Locke, of course, become hugely influential to the founders that are, you know, they're just a kind of, just this incredible roiling, bubbling ferment of uh, intellectual excitement about political order and the origins of political authority that kind of comes from really just a fantasy about the Americas. But but there is in the book, there's this tension. I mean, I guess as there is in, in almost all early American histories between like the high minded ideals uh, upon which America is founded and the gritty realities and compromises and, and in many cases, violence on, on which it's founded. You have a sentence in there um, or, or I guess a number that I just you write that between 1500 and 1800, roughly two and a half million Europeans moved to the Americas. They carried 12 million Africans there by force and as many as 50 million Native Americans died chiefly of disease. Those numbers are, are staggering. That, that Native American number is just higher than I understood it to be. Whenever I think about it, I think about the way in which America, uh, American movies have this trope of a home built on top of a Native American graveyard and haunted forever by it. And like it makes me think that that trope is much deeper, that, that we are actually built on top of that and, and, feel, and feel haunted by it. It's a lot of violence on which to build a country. It is a lot of violence on which to build a country. And it's, it, I think it's really important to stop and be a little bit stopped in your tracks and be staggered by those numbers. I mean, the numbers are, are debatable. This is, how do we know? We, it's very difficult to know. This is a whole scholarship that debates these Native American numbers. This is my best, fairest approximations from reading the scholarship. But it's also kind of important to remember that people have been reckoning with this and maybe failing to reckoning with it on intermittently for a very long time. My first book is about the 17th century war in New England between a coalition of Wampanoags and Narragansetts against the English of Massachusetts Bay and Plymouth and Connecticut. And it became really fashionable. This was in, in 1675 and 1676. In the 1820s and 30s, it became really fashionable to romanticize the native peoples of New England. Um, people would like, you know, say it was sort of like a George Washington slept here thing. Like if someone could manufacture a tie, like, well, this is a room in my house where we once, you know, where this, there's, we garrisoned here and you could see the, the, the bullet holes that came through, or this is the rock on which the great Narragansett leader Nipmuc once sat. And there are all these like landmarks put up all over the place. And meanwhile, New Englanders are very vehemently opposed to uh, Andrew Jackson's policy of Indian removal. Jackson wants to remove all the native peoples east of the Mississippi, force them off their lands to lands west of the Mississippi. And New England in Congress votes almost uniformly against it. And there's a lot of political dissent going on in New England. New England are really upset about uh, Indian removal. And Edward Everett, the great orator and politician, gives this speech, uh, maybe it's like 1831, in which he says like, okay, like kind of enough, just stop. Like if you actually really believe that Jackson and the federal government shouldn't be, ever opposes Indian removal. It's like, if you really, really believe that, like take that to its logical conclusion, like, and give your house back. Like you don't own your, if, if we don't believe in Indian removal, then how do we own, how do we live in these towns and inhabit these houses and sit on these porches and go to these town halls? Like these, these things are not ours. And so it's like, it's like, I think that's just so fascinating, right? Like all nations have these bloody pasts. I mean, you know, they're different and they're maybe further distant in, in many cases, or maybe they're, they're nearer. Um, but there are these weird moments when that very, 
I just because you had said that about the kind of ghosts that haunt the houses, like that's been said a lot over many centuries. Nothing's ever original. It's uh, it's so awful. Um, <laughs> that point you just made, though, about the necessity of creating a belief system that, that seems coherent enough to account for what we are actually doing. That's a really interesting thread in all this. I mean, in Ibram X. Kendi's book, um, Stamped from the Beginning, about the history of racist ideas in America, one of his arguments is that racism isn't the reason we have the policies and the outcomes we do. Racism was necessary to justify the policies and inequalities and white supremacy that, that we had. And that way in which particularly early America, was very based on on philosophical thinking, on a kind of rigor. And as such, to justify what was actually happening, what was actually being done, needed to and ne- needed to believe some quite awful things that stuck around for a very, very long time, uh, arguably still stick around in many cases today. Like that, that seems to be an interesting part of it, uh, a space maybe, I, I don't know if this is true everywhere else, but a space where the idea that America is an intellectual experiment forces us to intellectualize things that, you know, would maybe be better off um, not seen that way. Oh, that's an interesting question. I, I don't know what the answer to that is. I mean, I I absolutely agree with them that, you know, the empirical evidence all supports this. You know, if you're looking at the chicken and the egg, it's not really a chicken and egg. It's very clear. Like there are certain objectives that in terms of an economic order and they can only be justified with, a, with an ideology of, of racial difference that has to be devised uh, for, solely for the purpose of that justification. And then, you know, it's like the bustle on the clown, like the clown walks away and the bustle keeps going. So I agree with that, the, the, the thesis there. But in terms of what are the what are the consequences for that act of intellectualizing, I guess um, one would hope that a consequence is that a bad idea can be defeated by better ideas. I think that's probably right too, right? I mean, that that always fe- that feels to me to be such the tension of, of 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 your book on this that what gave America its kind of forward momentum was these ideas you could keep using. I mean, I don't mean to skip too too much forward in time, but you talk in in your chapter on civil rights, and and obviously this is a, a, a something many people have remarked, but the choice to align it with the American ideal rather than to make it a challenge to the American ideal, you know, that, that there was a promissory note that was written and has never been fulfilled. That seems to me to be the sort of remarkable thing about the country, that, that it, to take your sort of counterargument to me um, seriously, that we always had built in to, to the kind of intellectual fabric of it, this argument that later generations were always able to pick up and make their own and force people to go a lot further than, you know, than they were willing to go at the time. I wonder why you think that happened here. Like why you think that we had that quality? Because you could have imagined that happening in a lot of places. Like why, why did America with its very, you know, its bloody kind of foundation and slavery and everything else, why were, why did we write um, a Declaration of Independence and a Constitution like we did? Like, why? How, how were we so uniquely able to live with that contradiction and build it into our founding documents? Well, I think actually it is the constitutionalism itself that necessitates making those compromises. So the civil rights movement using the kind of promissory note rhetorical apparatus to align the cause of civil rights with the founders uh, and the framers of the Constitution, there really isn't much of a choice, right? Like if you want to succeed politically, it turns out, because people try, 
it's not that great to just say the Constitution is a disaster. <laughs> like, let's throw that away. And this is, I mean, the, the place where you see this most powerfully, because it's not, that's not clear up front, right? Like, when the Constitution is ratified, eh, people don't really have no idea that it's going to last. It, it doesn't have the sense of being a sacred compact, all the nonsense about the, the divinity of the founding fathers, or even calling them the founding fathers. That's like decades and decades away. So, you know, it's a new charter for the federal government is what it is. It's not a sacred document. It's, eh, we'll see how this goes. Maybe it'll last. Maybe it won't last. You know, Jefferson famously writes to Madison in the 18 teens saying, you know, well, we have to revise it soon because, you know, it, it, we, the unborn didn't consent to it in 1787, 88 and 89. So, you know, it only lasts for 20 years. We need a new one. We're going to have to do this every 20 years. And Madison's like, you're nuts. <laughs> We're not doing this again. Like that was so much sweat in Philadelphia because Jefferson wasn't there. But something changes by the 1840s. So if things begin to change politically uh, in the 1830s. Like as, as early as like 1812, New England basically tries to secede over the Three-Fifths Clause during the War of 1812. Like they just say like, look, okay, we weren't really down with the Three-Fifths Clause to start, <laughs> but we're really no longer down with it at all. We want out. And so there's this weird kind of failed secession attempt in the 18-teens. But 1826 is the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. It happens to be a decade of the beginning of a great religious revival, evangelical revival, and there's something kind of slippage going on between the Bible and the Declaration of Independence, and they the Declaration of Independence becomes kind of sanctified. And then 1837 is the 50th anniversary of the drafting of the Constitution, and that same kind of Protestant evangelical exegesis kind of begins to apply to the Constitution. So that's that makes it, it's it's more brittle. The Constitution becomes kind of brittle. So by the 1840s, when you have, like, say, Frederick Douglass out lecturing against slavery, he's going to take the position, because it's still tenable, that the Constitution is rotten at its core. It's tainted with a, this original sin. And that gets really extreme. The, the abolitionists really just, they're refusing to participate in electoral politics. They're waging a moral crusade against slavery and therefore against the Constitution. But by the 1850s, Douglas, who's this incredibly wise political actor, he kind of looks around and he takes like the read of the political culture. He's like, okay, this is really doomed. We can't just sit around lambasting the Constitution. Like we have to just decide that the Constitution is on our side and interpret the Constitution in a way that mandates the emancipation. And so he just makes this huge, he breaks with William Lloyd Garrison and the American Anti-Slavery Society, and he aligns himself with the new Republican Party, which is formed in 1854. And says, so like, look, ah, ta-da, the Constitution actually, I mean, the three-fifths clause, like, that's a problem. But they all, I agree, I agree with Abraham Lincoln. Like, they all thought that uh, slavery wouldn't last. So it, they, this wasn't like, a, this, the Constitution doesn't, in fact, sanction slavery. And that's the big debate that the Civil War is about. But the it becomes clear, in other words, by the 1850s, that if you want to change something that is that you believe to be deeply wrong in the political settlement of the United States, you're going to have more success if you can find a way to have the Constitution be on your side than by trying to take it down. Support for The Gray Area comes from Shopify. Imagine an action movie where the hero has to sell 1,000 Barbra Streisand t-shirts in 72 hours to save a major American city. Save the city from what, exactly? That's for audiences to decide. But how would they do it? They've used Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform flexible enough to help your business sell at every stage of growth, 
Whether you're the main character in a tentpole action movie or the real-life CEO of a multinational company. No matter what you're making, Shopify can help you sell it. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system, Shopify offers the flexibility to support your operation. They also offer something called Shopify Magic, an AI-powered helper created to help you stress less and sell more. Try it for yourself. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash box. You can go to shopify.com slash box now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash box. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Do you think this is a place where progressivism is in some crisis now? Going back to Obama for a second, he very much had that argument. The arc of history is on progressivism side. You know, the arc of history bends towards justice. And I, I would say particularly since his um, administration and after Donald Trump's election, a lot of progressive commentators like, no, it isn't. And the Constitution is a messed up document. And the Supreme Court, which interprets it, is very far on the other side. And, and I do think that there has been a, a turn towards a much more cynical reading of, of American history. Do you think that's a problem for modern progressives? I think it's a problem. I mean, you know, you can be sympathetic with it, but it's a problem. And there's there are better solutions than those that are being adopted there. I mean, as a lot of people, learned commentators have pointed out, there just really hasn't been a strong liberal constitutionalism since the Warren Court that the there there was a kind of abdication of constitutional interpretation and fighting against originalism, say, or fighting against, you know, a conservative politics of originalism, but not offering a counter interpretation of the Constitution. Obama, you know, who was himself, recall, a professor of constitutional law, you know, was a left constitutionalist and was was part of, a, you know, a fairly small group of people that were committed to doing that work. And it has been the case historically that where progressivism has confronted constitutional challenges, like think of Woodrow Wilson or think of the agenda of uh, progressives trying to uh, enact labor legislation, you know, abolish child labor, establish maximum hour and minimum wage laws, the, all these things that were struck down by a laissez-faire Supreme Court. You know, they had to come up with a constitutional argument. I mean, they had to have political solutions as well, but they had to come up with a constitutional argument. There's a limit to that. I mean, by the time you get to 1937, FDR is like, I know, we'll just pack the court. We'll put 18 people on the Supreme Court. That'll be the way we can get this stuff through. I mean, there, there are all these shenanigans around it, but you can't, there's not, a, there are not a lot of stories. I mean, maybe I'm forgetting something where you could point to progressives managing to achieve a a political victory that delivers, you know, needed political reforms to people who are to the people who are demanding them by bypassing the Constitution rather than uh, enlisting it. Just trying to think about that. Isn't part of the story people tell of FDR that while court packing fails, he manages to intimidate the court enough to get past Lochner era jurisprudence? Yeah. Well, you could say that. And you could also I mean, I was just as I was posing, I thought you're going to come back at me with the, the Affordable Care Act and say somehow, you know, that the argument is that, that is unconstitutional. I mean, we're recently kind of wrestling with that again. 
Yeah. I mean, FDR is doing the best he can in the 1930s to use the context of national emergency to get past the court laws that the court does not want to sanction. And his ability to do that is weakened by the end of the decade, but he's gained so much of a popular mandate for doing that. And as you say, has intimidated the court so significantly uh, that we could, it's a, I think it's a debatable point. So when I write about the Constitution, because I'm somebody who does write about its, what I see as its flaws fairly often, what I tend to be writing about is its relationship with democracy, um, the way the Senate is built, the Electoral College and how that has evolved, um, what kind of political system actually emerges out of the, the system designed in our Constitution. And one of the threads in your book that I think is really interesting to think about at this moment in American politics is our uneasy relationship with democracy. You, you quote a newspaper responding to Andrew Jackson's election by saying, the republic has degenerated into a democracy. So what's the nature of that anti-democratic argument in American history? Um, it is Aristotelian, right? I mean, and that's the, the conservative position in the 18th century and the early 19th century, the conservatives who are regretting the democratization of American politics, that there are three forms of government. And they have three, if, 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 they're, uh, if they're not properly mixed with one another, they will degenerate into the the crappy version of them, version of themselves. And the lousy version of a government of the people is democracy. Uh, that is the rule of the demagogue. It is, it, it's, it's as close to anarchy as you can come. So, you know, the, the crappy version of, of monarchy, um, the crappy version of aristocracy, uh, the crappy version of popular rule, uh, they each have a lousy version, but the lousy version of, of, of the rule of a polity is democracy. So in a strict sense, the objection is Aristotelian. What that actually means is a sense that majority rule in a world of mass democracy grants to people who can't possibly have enough information to make wise political choices or indeed to make independently minded political choices because they will forever be prey to the sway of people who essentially own them economically that you will have nothing but political disorder, right? This is the argument for not enfranchising women. Uh, women can't really exercise the suffrage independently of men because they're not economically independent of men. Unless women are have a capacity to be economically independent, they shouldn't be able to vote. That's, that, that is the argument against women's suffrage. It's, that is the logic of, of much anti-democratic sentiment in the 19th century as well. After ex suffrage is extended to all white men, you know, by the 1840s, when whether you're whether you pay taxes, whether you can read, whether you own property, whether you're new to the country, whether you're Irish or German or English or Scots, you can vote. There's a, there's a pretty significant interest in repealing that <laughs> by the middle decades of the 19th century. The wealthier white men, the well-heeled men of the 19th century, a lot of them kind of get together and argue like this was a big this was a big mistake. And and Jackson is is a big piece of that. Um, but bribery and money in elections are a big piece of that. Uh, and that there, there's this kind of constant questioning throughout the 19th century. It moves to the question, it moves to a different terrain during, during Reconstruction. But before that, it really is, is about poor white men. One of the reasons that thread of the book interested me so much right now is that it feels to me like our 
rhetoric around democracy has consolidated. You can't really come out and say, I don't believe decisions should be made by democracy. But that that underlying sense hasn't changed all that much. I think if you look at things happening in Wisconsin, if you look at, you know, we've had two of the last five presidential elections, one by the loser of the popular vote. Um, There's voter ID laws happening all over the country. There is still a sense that voting should be difficult and particularly for certain groups. And this is a sense that increasingly located in the Republican Party, but that, you know, this country will be worse off if voting is very easy and that, you know, you should have to have some kind of some some level of wanting it and maybe even some level of overcoming hurdles, uh, particularly if you're from a, a, a group of your suspicion to get it. And that that can feel un-American. But I think one of the things that, that is in this book and in a lot of our political history is that it's not that that suspicion of the choices and masses would make if they if everybody was voting runs very deep. But can we just go back? Because I'm not sure I really got to the bottom of what you were asking previously. But what is the relationship then between democracy and constitutionalism? Because you began when we turned to voting by asking me by saying to me that you thought that some of these your some of your objections to constitutional arrangements have to do with the way in which the Constitution is anti-democratic. That's different from voter these voter suppression issues. That is, that is very right. Different. Or are you somehow identifying no, this as constitutionally driven? You're absolutely right. That that is very different. I was I do not believe the American political system is well designed. Um, I think that's why we don't ever give that political system to anyone else, and no one else ever builds it. Um, we have a lot of like as somebody who like my my focus is often on political governance and, and and system design and the fact that we don't have a way to figure out conflicts between simultaneously democratically elected and legitimate power sources. I, there there are a lot of things in us that make us unstable um, and that that concern me, but. My I come at it from a perspective that I think we should be a more small D democratic country. And um, but I, I recognize that built into the Constitution and built into a lot of our political debates right now, although I think in a way that is increasingly suppressed from the actual argument being made. So it's hidden just in the things people are really doing is a sense that we shouldn't be a more small D democratic country, a sense that you can go much too far with that and maybe in some ways that we already have. So so that's, I think, the connection I'm drawing. It's not that's not my critique, but it is the one that I think people in my position or, or who hold my views are facing. Uh, does that does that sound right to you? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I agree. Uh, I'm not sure we would agree in the specifics of the design flaws or in the specifics of of their remedies. But I, I guess I was just trying to understand, like, to me, that is separate from because the Constitution actually doesn't say very much about voting at all outside of the Electoral College, which is a disaster. But, you know, in terms of the the the, the mechanics of voting is 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 left to states and municipalities and has throughout been a source of extraordinary and quite sophisticated political chicanery. And that is has mostly been around trying to suppress the votes of particular groups. Not so much, I don't think, and maybe we do disagree here, not so much out of a lack of ideological commitment to the idea of democracy, but out of a a prejudice against particular groups not being capable of participating in a democracy and therefore not shouldn't be allowed to be participating. It was a little bit different, I think, is a little bit different than the kind of broad, like, unsayable thing of, yeah, I don't even believe in democracy anymore. Like, that, that, uh, that is a little bit different than you know what, I have an idea about what we could do with the ballots to make them really tricky, you know, which happens all the time. And then you see that all throughout American history. 
So I, I have a couple thoughts on that because I think that's a really interesting way of putting it. So one of one of the ways I look at the system right now is that we have a set of compromises that were very live early in the republic, um, particularly compromises between states as primary political actors and then compromises between people who wanted for that period more democracy and people who were um, wanted more something closer to monarchy or, or, or were very afraid of, of mob rule. And that those the features of a system designed to answer some of those problems are creating new problems today. So for instance, I don't think states as political identities are very salient today. Um, you know, that we have we have so much in I mean the Senate I think of as a deeply anti-democratic institution. Um, but it's meant to equalize small and large states, but small small states don't vote as blocks. Um, they, like Wyoming and Vermont have a lot less in common politically at this point than Vermont and California or Wyoming and Texas. And so we have a lot going on there where we're trying to balance this big state, small state, and we're creating a very deep, um, for lack of a, I guess, Republican, Democratic imbalance. And sort of similarly, the Electoral College, as I understand it, is initially comes out of this fear of mob rule. And then I think in this deep historical irony is actually the thing that ends up electing Donald Trump, who I think is a kind of person the Electoral College is built to, to keep out. So I'm very fascinated within the Constitution in the way in which political compromises made to manage the salient competitions and salient concerns of another era have held in place and are now having what seemed to me at least to be unintended effects in our era now that the 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 important political competition seems to me to be overwhelmingly between these two party coalitions i want to say two things about that one the electoral college was a compromise over slavery it was not a compromise involving fear of mob rule really it is a product of slavery it is built on that earlier compromise so it's among the reasons it is it is a loathsome institution. Can you say more about that? Because I didn't know that. So the, com- the 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 first compromise that has to happen, right, is is about representation, and the question of how to apportion representation in the House. And Madison says the problem isn't between the struggle isn't between big states and small states because that is actually resolved by the Senate versus the House, right? Like at least there's there's, you, there's at least an attempt to resolve that with this kind of mathematical balance. The problem is between the slave states and the non-slave states, and that question is bandied about really solely entirely, you know, entirely over the question of how to apportion representation. Like you could do it by land, right? You could say like we'll have one representative for every so many square miles in your state. Or you could do it by the value of land, but you're going to be using that representation for purposes of taxation as well. And nobody really knows the value of land. It's very hard to calculate because like a swamp is not worth very much money, but a fertile, you know, plowed field is worth a lot of money. So, okay, know what we'll do? Well, there's this new sort of science of demography. We'll do it by the number of people. Well, if we're going to do it by the number of people, states like South Carolina, where uh, the enslaved population wildly outnumbers the slave-owning population, those states really want to count their slaves for purposes (laughs) of representation. And so anyway, that's how we get to the three-fifths clause. But then what's the question of how we're going to elect the president? So there is this question about mob rule because initially, like James Wilson from Pennsylvania says, well, we can let the people elect the president. And we're like, no, all right, no, like that's not going to happen. But so the, the, they're just like barely discussed. But then the question is like, should Congress elect the president? This seems like the right thing to do because they've already had this sort of situation. There's the indirect election of the Senate, 
right? The Senate's not elected by the people until 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 that's reformed by constitutional amendment. So the idea that the president should be in, should be indirectly elected is appealing to people, but you can't have the Senate elect the president because it violates the principle of separation of powers. So then the idea is, oh, I know we can kind of bundle these two problems together and solve them together. We'll create this other elected body, but that's not a branch of the federal government that can elect the president and will deliver much more representation to the states that own slaves. So we'll be able to keep these slave states in the union. And so that's what that and that is why all the, you know, of the of the first six presidents, all but Adams, who is just elected because he was Washington's vice president, are from Virginia, um, because Virginia has this huge disproportionate representation in the Electoral College because of it, because of the three-fifths clause. So it's a really insidious compromise in, in so many different ways. But now I've completely lost track of what, what the broader question here was. So you, you said there are two there are two places you were going to complicate that. One was that the Electoral College um, was not primarily a mob rule versus democracy compromise. And then the other, I had cut you off by being fascinated by that by that line of thought. <laughs> My point was that you have these old compromises on between the main political competitions being states and the other main political competition between being like the the kind of mob rulers versus like the 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 elites for for to, to shorthand it, and that they're in the present creating these very strange emanations where it's like what what our our, our political competition really is now are these party coalitions. Yeah, but we're not we're not probably super happy about the party coalitions either. Like, what is the remedy that you're looking for? Like, if if you had the magic wand and could convene the second constitutional convention and redesign, maybe you don't want to have a written constitution, but redesign even if it's an unwritten thing. Political arrangements under which the nation governs itself. You abolish the states. What's uh, what's your plan? So I'm actually thinking about this because I'm writing this book that is related to some of these issues. And the problem with what I'm about to say here is that I'm not sure this is the direction I'm actually going to go. It's just something that that I'm thinking about. But there is a lot of political science scholarship that makes the argument that in systems where parties are political parties are the fundamental vehicles for political competition. The system needs to be built around parties. It, it needs to have a much more um, ground level and fundamental accommodation for how parties work and how they operate. Um, now, that might mean things in the vote, in the way we vote. Right. You, you might want things like ranked choice voting. Um, it might mean, you, you know, one, I would get rid of the Senate. Like, absolutely. Um, and I would have a much more just like straight, small D Democratic. I think the parties should more or less have majorities that reflect um, the the number of people who voted for them. So I'm 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 in general a fan of that. But the problem to to what you just said is we don't like political parties. And I've come to think of one of like the central challenges in American politics that it's very hard for us to manage our central political competition because we don't want to admit what that competition is. We don't like our political parties as much as we're now incredibly loyal to them. More and more of us identify as independents, even though we vote as partisans. And there, there is just this conflict in, like our, in our national political soul between a political system that was not built with accommodations for political parties. And we kind of carry forward, it seems to me, that that, that view of political parties is bad things, factions that, that distort the national will. 
and a political system that is entirely about parties and has completely, in many cases, upended our constitutional logic. And so rather than now having, you know, ambition check ambition across different competing branches, we have two parties that compete simultaneously across branches and at times can unify all the branches in one um, uh, uh, under one agenda. And so I think I think that we need to take more seriously some of these ideas that, you know, since our parties do drive our competition, we need to find a way structurally to live with them. I don't know what that would mean, and I certainly don't think it's realistic. Okay, so I agree that we have a constitutional system that did not anticipate parties and was drafted by people who thought they were anathema to, to political life. And yet we have a political arrangement that is driven by parties. Yet, I maybe, I guess I would propose to you that the age of parties is ending. So maybe, weirdly, we will soon have a political system that, uh, for all this long centuries of divergence from the constitutional order, begins to converge with it. Um, wh- why do you think the age of parties might be ending? I mean, isn't it young people are, the, it's, you know, you say we are no longer, like we more of us identify as, isn't that mainly younger people? Like, isn't, is like, the parties have become so hollowed out and brittle and such weird emanations of their former selves that they don't actually outside of a kind of tribal loyalty they people are not attached to uh not, not attached to them in any more meaningful way and the people who are most attached to them are our generation that's passing so th- this is so interesting to me so i think this is both like true and false uh in the sense that there is clearly something happening where people and particularly young people hate parties. I mean, part of both Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders appeal, and I'm not I'm not comparing them morally or in any other respect, but is neither of them are party men. Bernie Sanders literally did not belong to the Democratic Party. And and Donald Trump, you know, had clearly not been an actual loyal Republican for, for most of his life. And, and so there's clearly an appeal to people like that. Um, and, and that reflects what exactly what you're saying, which is that particularly young people uh, do not do not like parties. But the political coalitions, the kind of what, for lack of a better term, the red-blue coalitions, they're getting much, much, much stronger. And because they're getting much stronger, the behavior around parties is becoming more predictable. So there's this paper that has influenced my thinking on this a lot by a guy named Corwin Schmidt. But what he shows is that um, today independents vote more predictably for a single party election to election than people who identified as, quote, strong partisans did in the 70s. So like somebody who's like, I'm a hardcore Democrat in the 1970s was more likely to vote for a Republican for president than someone who says they're an independent is to switch their vote um, election to election now. And like that's negative partisanship, right? Maybe you don't like your party, but you really hate and fear the other party. I I think parties are sort of like a, a bad term for the coalitions, like parties are part, like they're, they're the kind of political channel through which the coalitions act. But party behavior is becoming really, really strong, even stronger than it's maybe ever been, even as party identification and, and, and kind of sentiment is weakening. And that to me is like, again, one of these contradictions in us that makes it very hard to figure out which way to go here. But I think that our I think that we are cleaving much more deeply into two warring political coalitions. Um, Not that we're moving more towards uh, a system where people float more independently between the two of them. Well, I think there is some evidence on the other side of that argument. And I think, I mean, I think of that Hidden Tribes report by the More in Common Project that came out earlier this year about the exhausted majority of Americans who really uh, have kind of washed their hands of of both parties and of political rhetoric. And that may be consistent with your thesis in that uh, they nevertheless vote in predictable ways. 
But I think that's a tip of the iceberg uh, in terms of uh, large scale sort of ecosystem change. And I and I I'm not so persuaded that that divide represents genuinely held political ideas. I would suggest that what we see and what I forget the guy whose paper you were talking about is reporting, well, of course, accurate, is reflecting, for the most part, a development that I talk about in the book, which is the automization of polarization. That is to say, the partisan divisions that we live with now and are trapped in were built manually, voter by voter, um, by political consultants in the 1970s and the 1980s, who used abortion and guns as highly charged emotional issues that uh, stood on constitutionally weak arguments to drive voters to the polls and to elicit a kind of new attachment to ideological parties. And they were very successful at doing that. It took a long time. It really was pretty slow work. It was year by year, day by day. And uh, that when they were done, the internet was just uh, opening to commercial traffic and soon enough, social media had started and that now those forces, that work of, of driving polarization is done not manually at all, but done by a machine and is very difficult to escape. That doesn't mean that um, it's not a big problem. And I, I mean, maybe if I want to present it as this kind of terrifying dystopian machine that I can't also at the same time say it's about to die. <laughs> but I'm, I'm just going to hold that contradiction for a few minutes longer and say I do actually, I'm not so persuaded that the parties are, they're certainly not healthy. I mean, I, I they're, they're not like thriving. Uh, I think, you know, we're kind of like in the last act of a Terminator movie. <laughs> you know when they like collapse? Uh, I, like, yes, no, I, I totally do. Um, I, well, so let me actually push because this is this is a place where I can quibble with you. Where oh yeah, I, I will yield to the present, Ezra. Like anything you want to tell me, I, I'll kind of only really defend my argument about the past. So you're, I'm just, go ahead about the present. But I'm, yeah. no, no, no. I'm in, I've, I I think this was a really interesting part of the book, and one of the things I loved about it was I read so much political science and hearing the kind of the historian perspective on parties, which I don't often get, is really interesting. But but so here's my question uh, about the way you sort of frame the development of hyperpolarized parties in the 20th, 20, and then like now into the 21st century as uh, as kind of driven by political consultants and automation. The the standard political science narrative of this is that it's our non-mixed, I'm sorry, it's our non-ideologically polarized, non-identity polarized parties that are really weird, that are aberrant in kind of all modern democracies and, and aberrant like in theory and aberrant even maybe in, in America itself. And that that's very largely a result of the Civil War creating this strange Dixiecrat party that scrambles American politics for a very long time. So you have a very conservative Democrat, like a conservative white supremacist Democrat coalition within this broader Democrat coalition. And then, you know, Republicans have liberals like George Romney and everything is very weird for a long time in, in American politics. And you have a, you have some great statistics on this, like how I think it was one in three um, African-American voters supported Nixon in his first run for president and one in 10 did um, when he ran against McGovern just a, a decade or so later. And so to, the, the story that I tend to tell about that and, and tend to believe about that is that as the Dixiecrat Party and civil rights receded as this like blocking force in American political development, uh, and you just had more the, the the two parties sorted ideologically. Yes, you had political consultants and everybody taking advantage of that, but that they were just kind of like they're just 
they're just correlation. Like that we were just traveling down like a greased groove towards what party systems normally become, which is highly ideological, highly polarized and pretty separated by by group identity, you know, by 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 races, by religions, by other things. Like we've seen that in time immemorial. Do do you feel like that's a different story than you're telling? If like we did not have the rise of pollsters and things, do you think we'd be in a in a, in a different place or is that consistent with the story you're telling? So, I think that when we think about those two parties over the course of the 20th century or say from the Civil War forward, what we fail to understand is that there is uh, an unidentified third party, which is disenfranchised people of color, who, while not a political party in the classic political science sense and not testable and pollable and certainly not polled, um, but not part of the political modeling that those guys are doing, uh, absolutely affect American politics. And then when you put them, if you if you think about that group as a party, you know, as, as a de facto party, right, then, whoa, well, that's not an era of political consensus at all, right? When you, when you I think, correctly make the adjustment to understand uh, that the, the Democratic and Republican parties are not the only political parties. There is this vast, huge population that is a shared political interest group that is uh, that it is that, that has organized dissent against uh, the organized dissent against the, the governing power, which is what a party is. Then what you see is that what holds the the what the seeming lack of differentiation between Republicans and Democrats is their agreement to keep the other group disenfranchised. Like that's 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 the only thing that is holding them together, and it actually means that they uh, will, which is which is the truth about themselves that they are constantly hiding, right? Um, and so what we what we live in now, and it's really only since 1965 in the Voting Rights Act that we're actually talking about a world in which that third party is actually enfranchised, is a, is a fighting over uh, which party the, that third party will sort out into and how the other two parties will kind of reconcile their past as against a, a future in which that, that party is no longer kind of shadow party. So I think of I think of political consulting and polling as completely complicit in that project. I mean, I talk, for instance, about how Gallup uh, says, and he's just very clear about this as a methodological statement of fact, that he doesn't poll black voters because they can't vote in the South. They're just they're completely terrorized from participating politically. And so he attempts to be he claims to be representing American opinion. But what he means by American opinion is the opinion of American whites and that that passes for a political statement and a representation of 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 popular opinion is a travesty. And it just reproduces that political order. So uh, political consultants are involved in that same thing. And when yeah, I'm going to stop there. But just to say, I think that's actually, I do think that's an important adjustment to how we think politically. And where it mean, what it means is that many of our measures, and political scientists have kind of completely fascinating measures to track polarization. They're just completely out of whack. They're as out of whack as Gallup's public opinion polls were. Last week, Kanye West accused one of the biggest Twitch streamers of being an industry plant. It's an idea that comes up so often on platforms like TikTok and elsewhere. You see people who have blown up seemingly overnight. And the question is, who's behind them, right? That's what everyone wants to know. Tipping the scales and pulling the lever to make them seemingly the next it thing on the internet. This week on Power User, is it even possible to create an industry plant on the internet? And if so, how? Eurovision is here. This year's contest gets underway this week in Malmö, Sweden. 
But this year's contest comes with a dose of controversy. I'll give you one guess as to what people are mad about. Yes, correct. It's that. Organizers of the Eurovision Song Contest say they are assessing whether Israel's entry breaks the rules on political neutrality. I think it's a shame. I think there's no way that that Israel should be able to participate in Pro-Palestinian protesters are taking to the Swedish streets. More than a thousand Swedish artists, including Robin, have called for an Israel ban. Some European politicians are joining them. Charlie Harding from Switched On Pop joins us this week on Today Explained to help us figure out if Europe can sing its way out of this situation. So I think there's a bunch of really interesting stuff there. I want to just emphasize something you said because it's a big part of my thinking. We use the term polarization as a bad thing, right? Polarization is it's like a synonym for for bad, conflict, angry, mean, loud. And the period of time in which we did not have very high polarization in this country um, is built on top of the most horrific kind of agreement. I mean, it's agreement to preserve white supremacy. Um, the, when we have like the the rise of the filibuster in the Senate is all against anti lynching laws, as, as you as you mentioned in the book. And one of the things about a system with a lot of that does not appear to have a lot of conflict is that often that conflict is being suppressed, and that that the suppression of that conflict might itself be very unjust. Um, it is actually something I, I, I'm glad you brought up because. I wanted to ask you about it. You, you bring up the book How Democracies Die um, in, in, in passing in your book. Um, and it's a book I've read as well, and I've had the authors on this show. And something they argue is that American politics tends to be calm in periods of, of racial stagnation, um, and, and particularly in periods of white supremacy, and turbulent in periods of racial progress um, when, when we're actually dealing with some of these th- this, this, this past of our politics and our country, as you put it. Do you think that's right? Do you think that um, we often mistake um, what appear to be periods when the American political system is working well for pe- uh, as periods actually when it's not working well at all? That that, that we, we mistake calm for justice in a way that is very misleading? Because that, I think, if you if you really build that into the way one experiences politics, I think it... It even creates a very different way of thinking about this era, right, where we are having a lot of, you know, demographic change. We had the first African-American president. Now we have a, a white backlash president. And there's a tendency to say this is going very badly. But maybe periods when we're changing the distribution of power so it's more equitable, it might always feel bad. And it doesn't mean it's not dangerous. It could go wrong. And it does for long periods of time in American life. But but maybe there's another way to look at this where our, our sense of how the political system is operating is actually our feelings about it, the way it feels to us. It's not actually a reliable indicator of whether things are going well or poorly. Yeah. So I, for a long time, so historians always get asked this question, I mean, maybe especially the last 10 years or so, like, has it ever been this bad? Meaning this, meaning polarization or the nastiness of American politics. And for a long time, my stock answer to that was, for who? Right? <laughs> like, what do you how can you even ask that question? Like, look at the past of the country. Has it ever been this bad um, for most people living in the United States and their ancestors? It's been a whole lot worse. I mean, what are you even talking about? Like, who are we? Like, who is we in that sentence? Are, have we ever been that divided? Well, yeah. Like, you know, like, I mean, not to not to make people feel bad about asking the question because it's heartfelt. Like, people, you ask that question from a place of real pain and and I think grief. 
So I don't mean to mock the question, but I, I always take that, mo that moment to say, okay, well, let's think about what that question really, really means. If you, is, you know, before emanci the Emancipation Proclamation, before the 13th Amendment, the 14th Amendment, the 15th Amendment, before the 19th Amendment, before the Voting Rights Act, like, was there ever a day, was there ever a day in the world of chattel slavery that was a better day than today? No. You know, there's just no, there's not, there's not. So take that away. And then you have to ask if you, if you're talking about all of American history uh, and the, if the American people is not just some piece of cheap, cynical political cant, but is actually meant to represent, you know, the body of the people, then you have to think about enslaved people as forming a de facto political party. And then polarization looks completely different. And then your idea about progress is actually gets you to progressivism, right? That actually then is a story of progress. And that is one of the splinterings between conservatives and progressives, because because that is a piece of, you know, the kind of the moral arc of the universe, Obama, you know, king to Obama trope that it is it is about making making that particular investment. But I, I do think that that corrective is is really, really important. And so yeah, so for I guess I go back to so for a long time when people ask me this question, has it ever been so bad? Have we ever been so divided? I always like offer up this thing, um, but then I think it was it was really this past summer with the um, the detention of migrant children and their separation from their parents that I kind of decided I had to revise the argument because has it ever been this bad? That corrective is still really important, but then there's a sort of like, but then now let's think about that. Because uh, that's it's really hard to compare that to episodes in American past and not not and still come up with a narrative of progress. It, it feels to me actually this this really relates to the issue of of what is our narrative. Because on the one hand, I have the exact same reaction as you do to the "Has it ever been this bad?" question. I, I wrote this piece of probably about a year ago now called um, "You Know American Democracies Survive Much Worse Than Trump." And and the point of that piece is basically it's almost always been worse. I mean, just objectively, like American democracy, American politics has almost always been worse, even in the periods when we think it's been better. I mean, my mother was born before segregation ended and like well before segregation ended. <laughs> These are not this is not ancient. Um, but on the other hand, I think the I think the thing people are reacting to a little bit in that question of has it ever been this bad is that we have a story and then a sense of continuous American progress. And I think that on the one hand, having a more realistic sense of our history furnishes a kind of optimism from, no, it's often been worse. This isn't that bad. But also by the same token, having a more realistic sense of our history is a reminder that progress is not unstoppable. And it's not even even in just American history, unstopping that we have long periods of when we decline, when we when we go backwards and, and we could have longer ones in the future. And so on the one hand, like, has there ever been this bad? It's been much worse. But I think the feeling like of, of ricochet, the feeling of like Donald Trump to Barack, I'm sorry, Barack Obama to Donald Trump that people are are are, are reacting to when they, they ask that question. It's a feeling of like, wait, have we ever turned around? I often think that's what people are really asking. Like, like, how can we be turning around? We're not supposed to turn around, but we have before. I mean, that that's also not a new experience in American life. It's just one that in our in our narratives of progress, we don't, it seems to me, really teach. Yeah, and I do think that's important. And that, I mean, that was a very, very good justification for writing a 900-page book of American history. Thank you. Because you can't see that unless you look at the long durée, right? Like, if you're just going to, like, do spot, like, 
you know, like facile analogies with different moments in the past and kind of compress the distance between, you know, FDR and Obama, like an accordion, then you're gonna be like, well, I don't know, this was that, and this is this now, and then there was then, and then there was this, and then there was that, and everything is just kind of uh, weird. But if you like open up the accordion and you like look at the whole thing and you hear the whole music, it, well, then you see that, okay, so the drive for the secret ballot was a really important reform because people were being bribed and being bullied at the polls. But the secret ballot was actually used to disenfranchise black voters because it was a de facto literacy test. So on the one hand, it seems like, wow, great, this is a really important political innovation. On the other hand, it's a completely backwards political move. And that happens all the time. Like that, that there's, it's a, I'm not sure it's two steps forward, one step back, or one step forward, two steps back. Like that's the judgment issue that we are all facing like day to day. <laughs> that's why the news feels so disorienting. because like, oh, damn, we've taken another three steps back today. When are we going to take a step forward again? Like I can't, I feel like I need a, like a little bit of a glimmer of a step forward. That that I think is, it's, it's really, really tricky. But another thing about it that I, a pattern that I came to be kind of committed to because I kept seeing it was that, and I, I wrote an essay about this maybe last year, called No, We Can't, about the fashionableness of radical pessimism and dystopian fiction, in which I said that um, utopianism and pessimism in politics are like thunder and lightning. They actually happen at the same time. You just experience them at a different moment. So Obamaism and Trumpism are actually from the same moment. They're products of the very same moment. It's not like Trumpism is a response to Obama. They're both a response to the same thing. And I find that analytically kind of helpful. I'm not sure I can defend it, but I felt like I kept seeing that. Like the secret ballot is a good example. It is it is about trying to make sure that people can vote, uh, cast a ballot safely. But it really is from the start, like the, the kind of the people that are fighting for it, uh, the kind of Henry George, who's it's his big banner issue. They're also nativists and they're also they really don't want black men to vote. So they like it's it's from the start. It's kind of this, it's, it's, it's ultimately going to be about Jim Crow. I really love this idea, and I, I feel like this applies almost to everything. I feel like there's a real deep-seated human desire for things to be one thing or the other, for it to be right or wrong or good or bad or true or false. And I, I find this even just doing this show. I have so many people come on. You know, I, I, I have a lot of people on the show who you know I, I mostly don't agree with, but I often agree with 20% or 30%. I often see ideas that are, are a way of looking at looking at the world that I think are, you know, like 15% right. And that 15% is maybe really important. There, there seems to me in, and maybe it's like the, the human mind's attraction to stories. Um, I, I often wonder if it's about how we tell ourselves stories about things and stories do often. They sort of end in one place or another. But but so much of our, our history, our presence, so much of ideas, so much of people, I, I feel like we have a lot of trouble, and this is particularly a trouble we have in, in journalism and political journalism, in refusing to put things on one side of the line or the other and just saying, yeah, like, there's there's a lot in here. Some of it's good. Some of it's bad. They're the seeds of dystopia and the seeds of utopia. And it'll all be there. I mean, you, you talk a lot towards the end of the book about technology. And I, I think about that in our conversation right now about things like Facebook and Twitter and, and just the, the tech sector in general. You rewind the clock 10 years or eight years and it's all good. It's so remarkable. It's so great. Mark Zuckerberg should maybe be president. And then you you now we're here and it's like it's all terrible. It's all bad. And I'm a big critic of these things. But it, it like even in some of my criticisms, I, I can feel like, oh, we've we've swung all the way to the other side. Like we've really, really rapidly gone like all the way to the other side. And that. 
that inability to hold both things in our head at the same time feels to me like a real like real analytical failure that makes it harder for us to understand the world as it is and then continuously surprised by the world as it develops when something like how can this thing that was good two years ago be bad now? It's like it's like the it's like an endless world of if you know this um, this online reference milkshake ducks. Oh my god, I don't know what a milkshake duck is. I feel so <laughs> behind. It's like I feel like an there's ancient a, there's person. A, there's a tweet I did not know about this for a long time, but it is amazing. There's this tweet that got slowly a, a bazillion retweets. They were talking about oh the duck, it's so cute, it drinks milkshakes, and then it's like a line later, it's like we regret to inform you the duck is a racist. <laughs> and the idea is that in, in life there are all these things that are milkshake ducks that it's like everybody's like, oh, isn't this great? And then it's like like way to beat it's like oh it wasn't that great it was a milkshake duck i find it to be a surprisingly helpful right, concept guess, yeah no so no you you're right about that i mean another you could say the sexual revolution versus me too like clearly those two things are in conflict with one another but also clearly you have the same origins like uh i i, I think it is difficult for people to hold things and i'm not sure kind of the brain science behind that i do think what I believe is now known as CMC, computer-mediated communication, is demonstrably binary. Uh, people, people's views do not adjust using computer-mediated communication. Like, you can't have that experience online of, oh, I 20% agree with you. Like, you either you either hate them or you don't or you love them. Like, there's a, that, that uh, there are technological reasons uh, for why maybe our inclination to think that way is somewhat exacerbated or rewarded, I guess, in the way that many of us do a lot of communicating. So I don't know, that's, that's, that's worth thinking about. I don't know what the remedy is, what the remedy is to that. I mean, on the one hand, you, you want to say you've made a kind of endorsement, you've endorsed polarization and parties. On the other hand, parties and polarization, this is the kind of thinking that they are asking of their followers. Oh, I think I should say when I endorse parties and polarization, I think it's bad. I just am not sure. I'm not sure there's a way out from it, but through it. Um, I, I don't. I don't want to be on the side of thinking of of saying that how things are going is good. I think it's terrible. It's why I'm writing. It's why I'm trying to understand and write a book about it. I just think that our idea that we will like unwind it often seems uh, like I, I don't see the evidence of for it. But actually, this is a good circle back to to something else that you had talked about that I wanted to follow up on, which is this critique of polling and poll-driven politics as a, a, a threat to democracy. And, and something that's so interesting a, a, of a threat in your book is the early critiques of it. Now, polling is such a part of the landscape that we, you know, it's just it's just part of how we know what's going on in, in politics. But when it emerges, there's much more radical critiques of what it might do to our system. And I, I wanted to get you to to expand a bit on those and, and to ask you if you think that, that they've come true. I, you know, I... I... I try in this book to, to just really keep keep my cool. You know, a lot of things that trouble me, I really restrain myself and I don't comment on them. And I'm, I'm really trying to write for, I'm not trying to write an ideologically driven history and I don't have a lot of access to grind. I'm really trying to do my best to write a fair account. I think I maybe lose it a little bit with polling because polling drives me nuts. Like I, it is. I was not super confused about whether or not you liked it. <laughs> um I, and and I was trying to spend some time resurrecting those earlier arguments. I mean, this comes out of in 2015, I was asked to write a piece on polling for The New Yorker. And so I did a whole bunch of research and I'm actually working on a project now that's about data science. So it's a thing I kind of I live with a lot. 
But one of the things that fascinated me in going back and reading the early debates around, so the American Institute of Public Opinion is founded in 1935 by Gallup, and then he has a syndicated column. So it really dates to the 1930s. Uh, but in the 1930s, it's it's pretty controversial. And again, a lot of the controversy is like, this doesn't work. Um, then Gallup, in order to kind of prove that it works, he's trying to ask people's opinions about things, not ask them how they're going to vote. He's doing public opinion measurement, doing survey research. And people, the newspaper is like, well, I, prove to us that you're reporting accurate results. And he's like, well, I, have, I, have, I know, I have a way I can prove to you that my measurement of public opinion method, which is a, a, kind of a new method, is, is accurate. I'll, I'll predict some elections. I'll measure people's, I'll ask people to tell me how they're going to vote. And then I'll tell you how they're going to vote. And that, that, then you'll know if my survey research is legitimate. But otherwise, I won't do that because that would be a bad thing to do. We shouldn't be predicting elections. That would interfere with democracy. <laughs> so he does these predictions, and he's right. And um, so then he wants to go on this public opinion research. But now everybody says, but we'd really like you to keep predicting. We love that. Like, we can sell a lot of newspapers. We can sell a lot of airtime. Like, keep predicting the elections. So then he does a lot more of the predicting of the elections, which, to defend Gallup, wasn't actually what he was about in the first place. Then once he starts predicting the elections, people offer two kinds of critique. One, they say, actually, the whole method actually is crap, whether or not he's able to predict elections or not. And they explain why. And there's this really... This guy, Herbert Bloomer, who's a sociologist, writes this kind of beautiful. I mean, it's a very takedown seems like it's mean spirited. It's not. It's just a very, very, very learned and meticulous deconstruction um, of, of, of the, the methodological problems of measuring public opinion. And then this guy who's kind of my hero, this guy, Lindsay Rogers, who was a, a professor of law and political science at Columbia, who had been a reporter, long time, like beat reporter, uh, writes this book called The Pollsters, which comes out in, I think, 49, right after the famous Dewey Beats Truman fiasco, when the pollsters are, are everybody's beginning to ask questions about whether polling is just getting things wrong. And Rogers writes this book in which he says, I don't care whether they get things wrong or right. I, they shouldn't be doing it because it's not how our democracy is meant to work. Because what's beginning to go on, Rogers will say, is that politicians are actually... They have their own pollsters, like FDR even has his own pollster. They're asking people's opinions about things, and then they're doing what they believe to be the bidding, their bidding of their constituents. But that's not our political system. We don't have delegates. We have representatives. A delegate does the bidding of their constituents. Delegates do the bidding of their constituents, but representatives listen to their constituents, but they, they exercise their judgment. And that's what leadership is. That's how our constitutional system is arranged. And so there's, there's the, whole, the whole idea that you must take the pulse of the American people at all times, which is Gallup's assertion, and the whole incredibly rich industry builds upon that assertion, is flawed. And uh, there's so much money being made that people kind of just, just kind of set that aside. One of the things that, that, that I think about when you, when you offer that critique is that the way polling is done also is not just to find out where the, the public is so you can do what they want. Um, if it was, I think politics would look quite different. It's often to find out where they are so you can convince them of what you want, right? It's to find like how to say the thing you want them to support in the way that is maximally um, tied to getting them to support it. And I don't know, we've, we've talked in this conversation about the ways in which we're not as much, we're not built to be as much of a democracy as, as we sometimes certainly portray ourselves to be. But there are a lot of ways in which I think we've lost the idea of what we should be as a republic, too. 
um, and we have very, very low, um, a very low ask of ourselves and of our representatives on, on, on that side of the ledger. I'm, I'm, I'm curious how you think about that, that. Have we lost some kind of language about that or, or, or philosophy about how that side of the political system is supposed to work that we need to rediscover? Well, what you're describing is the large transition, really, that begins at the beginning of the 20th century, even the late 19th century, from a politics of mass participation to a politics of mass persuasion, right? With the rise of mass advertising and mass communications in the 20th century, politicians found it expedient to handle the unruliness of of democracy, of a large enfranchised population, um, by just telling people, you know, stay home. We'll just send you out some messages on the radio. Um, Look for some ads in your local newspaper. Uh, we'll be sending you leaflets <laughs> uh, that that the, the work of that modern advertising did to transform how our political system works really just told people to stay home. And among the sources of the utopianism in the 90s about the Internet was, oh, this will bring about this will bring people back into participating politically. It'll be virtual participation, but at least they won't be just being persuaded. And that's, of course, not how it turned out. No, no, <laughs> no, not at all. That, that's that's been one of the that's that's been one of the ones the internet did. did yeah, the did internet research well. agency figured that out pretty early on. Yeah, let me ask you about something you say towards the end of the book, in which you're quite critical of liberalism's turn towards identity um, over or in conjunction with with economics. And I, I wonder about how that interacts with something you were saying earlier about there have previously been this like third disenfranchised party in American politics. Is some of the ways I often think that a lot of the ways in which we feel identity politics now is operating has less to do with the politics being different and more to do with more people being in it. That when there's more contest over whose um, experiences and, and, and needs get met, that, that we feel identity politics, even though, you know, uh, a, a, a politics of a mono identity is also a kind of identity politics. I, I'm curious how you see that playing out. Is there a is there a version of. A plur of a of a truly pluralistic, inclusive politics in which people are not going to constantly feel the the pull of the different identities and groups and races and genders and so on within it, or is this just kind of the the the, the road we're on? Um, and and one of the one of the things that's going to hurt if we're able to live up to to what we say we're going to be as a as a pluralistic, multi ethnic uh, democracy. I don't think it is just the road. We we are on this road, but I think there are some turns that we could make. I do think there's not an inconsistency between cherishing pieces of who you are in many kind of sizes and communities and also having an attachment to a national identity. It's actually a piece of the problem is that we have no nonpartisan way to talk about a national forms of belonging or attachment. We have nationalism, which used to be, like in the 19th century, was kind of liberal nationalism. And it meant kind of the commitment to the idea that the nation state endows its citizens with universal human rights. Um, And 20th century nationalism, which meant we will destroy other nations and take their goods and their their people and their land in the interests of our greater nation. So the 20th century version of nationalism kind of won out. And so we don't talk about nationalism in in that 19th century way anymore. And we don't have a different, sometimes people talk about national character or national identity or pluralism or multiculturalism were the kind of 90s 
way to talk about that. Um, but because na- 20th century nationalism is so abhorrent and so uh, violent and this, this scourge of, of, a, of an entire century, liberals in particular, in the same way they kind of retreated from talking about constitutionalism, retreated from talking about national belonging and academic historians, to get back to where we started, stopped writing national history because uh, it seemed like part of a nationalist project and, un, you know, un, really unsavory, if not, you know, horrible. And I think if we want to have a sense of belonging in it, like uh, there's this great essay that the historian Carl Degler wrote in which he said, like, the problem for historians who kind of abdicated writing national histories is that people still live in nations. Like, in, the, in nations don't exist without an explanation. And if people who are committed to liberal values don't offer those explanations, those explanations will be given by others, and they will they will be kind of horrifying. So let, let me, here's my question about this. I always think about Obama as a very interesting test case of this. Here's somebody who ran on the very explicit construction of a kind of national identity, and, and in his version, an inclusive national identity, a, a national identity that laddered up from the story of progress, from, you know, a story like his could only happen in America, and he was a convergence of all these different experiences and histories and nationalities and groups and, you know, all of it. And one of the things I think is really interesting about the way the country responded to Obama was that it led to what people experienced as a rise of identity politics. When, when Obama stood up and says, you know, I come to you as a president and as an American, and I also recognize that I could have been Trayvon Martin, that, that or my or, or if I had a son, he could have been Trayvon Martin. And people say, oh, you're you know, you're you're playing the race card um, that there is something there that struck me as very pessimistic for the um, universalistic view of this, because Obama seemed to me to be one of the more talented um, articulators of national identity, but his national identity was meant to be inclusive. But what I think he sort of showed was that if you allow the experiences of, of individual groups to bubble up into into the national identity, people then experience that as an, as an identity politics and a fracturing and it creates backlash. And so... I don't know. It's made me it's made me more pessimistic. It's made me think that we're so tuned to see, you know, group competition and so tuned to feel group threat that it's hard to imagine uh, politics. that is truly pluralistic where people are not going to feel that happening a lot, even if there's a really, really strong effort to build a national identity that allows for that rather than excludes it. Well, how do you think that would have turned out if during Obama's two terms, he and his administration working with Congress had been able or able to deliver more things that voters wanted. I think possibly a bit better, but not that different. I think that the what we see in Western Europe right now is a lot of countries with much more expansive social safety nets than ours are having, you know, similar or worse problems around immigration. I, I I always I don't I think it was just Sweden that had this huge rise in a far right populist party, despite the fact that the economy is going fine and that they have like a very, very expansive safety net. I think the view that you can calm this conflict through uh, more populist distribution of goods, it, it feels like it should be right, but it doesn't play out for long periods very often that, that, that those things seem to operate in parallel, people are perfectly capable of saying, yes, I want health care, but I don't want it this way. I mean, you have a very you have a really interesting discussion of why America doesn't have a national health care service uh, or system in this country. But that's a story I know pretty well. Um, and 
I think a lot more of that story is about race than people realize. America has very different attitudes towards having um, an expansive social safety net because of race. And when you take that out of it, as has happened in some states or has we can see it in other places, um, it it makes it a lot easier. But as soon as something becomes understood as it's going to give benefits to them, people are perfectly willing to not have it give benefits to themselves either. And so I think those things operate consistently at the same time um, and often in contraposition to one another that like Republicans, I think in general, have been very effective at stopping a lot of things people might want by saying, yeah, but you know who's going to get those things? It's those people over there. Okay, well, I'm glad that we're ending um, on a point where I get to say that I'm the idealist in this conversation, because I guess I do think that changing the way people talk about community and belonging uh, and the common wheel is important. It's important even if it doesn't lead to the expected results. I think it's because I don't really see what the downside is. Oh, I'm not arguing. Yeah. I think you need to talk in terms of a national identity. I don't think there's a way in politics to not do that. Yeah. I mean, I guess I just I, I agree with you. It's not a magic wand that solves that solves problems. But I think it's a it's a source of, and I mean this seriously, of like real pain for people that we don't have a national story that makes sense and holds the past accountable and pictures a better future. Well, that's why I, I will say, like, I think the achievement of your book is truly remarkable. How did you decide what not to put in? I read this book. And how did you decide what not to have in it? So I wrote the book strictly chronologically. And I outlined it. And when I set up my chapters, each chapter was going to cover a specific span of years, but it was also going to treat a specific theme. Because the way to organize knowledge, I decided for a reader, where there's just chaos of information, would be to treat each era as if it was really about a single idea, which would give me also then an architecture. Uh, that I that it was sort of that I was sort of stuck with, and it's artificial, but it would mean that, that things would seem to move through time. So, for instance, when I got to the last chapter, is called "America Disrupted," and it starts on 9/11, and it ends uh, with Election Day of 2016, and it, the theme is disruption, and by which we generally are talking about technological disruption, but I mean to include political disruption. And so, then, if you think about, okay, so you put two poles in the ground, one is. September 11th, 2001. And the other poll is Election Day 2016. And then you hang a clothesline. And the clothesline is disruption. And so then you have a basket of laundry <laughs> to hang up. And you can only pick out of the, the basket the stuff that's, that belongs on that clothesline. So I, I, if, if I had a different theme, I would have, for instance, written more about Black Lives Matter. But Black Lives Matter is on that clothesline because it's disruptive, right? It, it's technologically disruptive. It is actually live streaming and Facebook. It, even before that with Rodney King, it's cell phone footage. There's a whole technological disruption to uh, the invisibility of police brutality against African-Americans that fits my, fits my theme, but also belongs uh, on the line that is between those two poles. So it was always that discipline. Like, it is really is a very kind of depressing metaphor hanging up clothes on the clothesline but is a thing I do <laughs> so uh that's how I that's how I thought about it uh, structurally when I was working chapter by chapter that, that's incredibly helpful to for, for me as an author and do you have time to give the three book recommendations yeah. or all right I thought of three I thought of three books that I wanted to warmly recommend to you 
Um, Ira Katznelson, Fear Itself, about the uh, 1930s and the New Deal's brilliant, staggeringly beautiful book. Uh, Michael Kazin's A Godly Hero, which is a, a really new look at William Jennings Bryan. I just I learned so much from this book. He's the editor of Descent. Um, and Isabel Wilkerson's lyrical, stunning, incredibly researched Warmth of Other Sons about the Great Migration. Jill Lepore, this is such a pleasure. Thank hey, you so thank much. thank you. Thank you to Professor Lepore. The book, again, is These Truths. I really, really do recommend it. Um, thank you to all of you for being here. Thank you to my producer, Jillian Weinberger, my engineer, Jeffrey Gold, um, to Dover Ruth at UC Berkeley, Yezra Klein. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com.